in the past couple of weeks and then move on to verse 4. Hebrews 1, 1, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The theme of the book of Hebrews, as I've mentioned to you many times and for several years, is that Christ is better. And the Jews, as you are aware, were steeped in their religious traditions and all the shadows of the Old Testament. And due to their deep roots, the Jews continually struggled with abandoning the old covenant for the new, which, as Hebrews explains clearly, was the fulfillment of the old covenant in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we discovered in our study last week, the opening emphasis of this epistle is declaring the superiority of God's Son, the Lord Jesus, as the Word of God or the divine expression of God the Father. Verse 1 begins, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets. So we saw last week that God spoke at sundry times, which simply means the Lord spoke in many portions. It was, again, a progressive revelation. God was continually, progressively revealing himself to man. Then we saw also that God spoke in diverse manners, as the verse says. And the phrase diverse manners means in many ways. The Lord chose to speak to man in many different ways or in many ways. I, I want to mention a few just for a moment. Of course, there were the prophets. We'll see that in just a moment, that God spoke uh, to the fathers, by the prophets, the scripture says, God gave them his law, the Decalogue, he gave them the Torah, of course, the Old Testament as we understand it now, and also, and the law of God, of course. We also know that God spake, for instance, if you recall, uh, through a, a burning bush, remember with Moses, God used that. God spake as well through, uh, through Balaam's donkey, if you recall, caused him to speak, but it was God who enabled him to do so. And so we see throughout the Old Testament, there's many different ways in which God spoke to man and, and at, in, in different portions of Revelation. But then three, God spoke in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, as we saw. And here we understand the writer explains to whom and by what means the Lord spoke, generally, and he used the prophets to proclaim his truth. And I mentioned last week that there is a contrast in verse 2 as to the manner described in verse 1 concerning that God had previous, the way in which God had previously communicated with man. In verse 2 it says that God, of course, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, <clears throat> excuse me, whom he had appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Now while there is a clear contrast within this verse compared to the previous verse, I mentioned as well what we need to see is what is also common between the two verses. So he had spoken in time past, unto the fathers by the prophets, now hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. And so this is a clear contrast, but yet the, the common reality between the two verses is that it is the same God speaking today who spoke in times past. The Lord has now spoken, however, directly to us by his Son, the Scripture says, and this is a complete revelation. While in the Old Testament, the Lord progressively revealed his truth, in the New Testament, 
the Holy Spirit progressively illuminates man to his revealed truth. John 14, 25 through 26, we read that last week. John 16, 12 through 14, we read that as well. Then in verse 3, we're told who, Jesus, being the brightness of his, the Father's glory, and the express image of his, the Father's person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. I told you last week as well, the word being is a, is a present participle of the word be, which indicates a continuous state. So the Lord Jesus is the brightness, and the word brightness here literally is that of radiating or radiance. And so he is the brightness or the radiance, he is radiating the very glory of the Father. Jesus radiates God, the Father's glory, to humanity. So not only did the writer of this epistle, as we've seen in these verses, to the Hebrews begin by stating that God has spoken to mankind by his Son, but he also distinctly and emphatically declares that Jesus Christ is so much better. Look at verse 4. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, although the statement that Jesus is so much better refers to his superiority over the angels, the statement is setting the stage for the entirety of the emphasis of this epistle. Now, I want to I pause here for just a moment to remind you of something, because this verse, like others, if we don't remember and understand the context of what is being stated, it could be a little confusing, or someone may just misread or misinterpret, misunderstand what's actually being stated. We remember back, I told you that John chapter 1, we read last week, John 1, 1 through 3, in relation to Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, and we see the, how they are parallel and reflective of one another in reality. The same truths are being stated here, and it's very interesting to note and understand uh, how that is stating that Jesus, of course, is the Word. He is the express image of God here. It, the Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then also that all things were made by him. In Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, the same thing is stated. And so we see a great parallel between these two passages. We also see that Jesus, as far as we know, like in Philippians, for instance, and we'll look at some of these verses in a moment, and, and other passages in which Christ uh, has been given a name that's above every name, we're told, and that he is exalted, the Father is exalted, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you come to passages such as this, where it says, being made so much better than the angels, we first of all understand that Jesus Christ, the person, Jesus, was never created. So this isn't talking about he was made or created better than the angels, but rather it speaks of his incarnation. It speaks of him being manifested in the flesh. And so he was, but more specifically, this portion of the scripture is talking about his glorification. So being made better than the angels, talking about he is glorified flesh now, which is greater and better than even the heavenly creatures themselves. So we understand that this statement, better than the angels, it's referring specifically to the angels and that Christ himself in a glorified body and glorified flesh is exalted above the angels, having been glorified, having been exalted after his death, burial, and resurrection. So not only is Christ better, this is setting that stage for this whole emphasis of the, of the epistle or the, the theme, Christ is not only better but because he is better, we also understand that he offers and gives to us better things through a better covenant that's based on better promises. Look in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, for instance, and we read, But now, 
hath he obtained a more excellent ministry by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. And this better covenant brings the worshipers to the Lord. Now, I want to, I want to move to this thought and this teaching and truth of Hebrews concerning a better covenant for a moment because it is significant in understanding even all that's being stated about Christ being made better than the angels as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. And so let's look at how all this connects with this better covenant that is spoken of in Hebrews 8, 6. When you consider the old covenant, look in Hebrews chapter 9, for instance, with me. And we're going to read several verses here throughout Hebrews just to show some of this connection for you as we work our way through chapter 1. In chapter 9, verse 1, Then verily the first covenant, the first covenant would have been what? The old covenant, right? So the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service, and that means divine worship, and a worldly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle made at the, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna, and Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant. And over it, the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priest went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God, again, the worship of God. But into the second went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors of the people. The Holy Ghost this signifying that the way into the holiest of all was not yet made manifest, while as the first tabernacle was yet standing. So again, let me just clarify what's being stated here. The Holy Ghost signifying through the offerings in the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament, he was signifying that the way into the holiest of all, the true holiest of all, had not yet been made manifest. Which was, verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience, which stood only in meats and drinks and diverse washings and carnal ordinances imposed on them until the time of reformation. Now look at verse 11. But Christ become a high priest of good things to come by great, greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of, go of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Verses 8 and 9 of this text show us that the priest or worshiper was not made perfect through the sacrifice that was offered. The people themselves, verse 7, had to have one represent them in their worship to the Lord, and they rejoiced and had a form of worship, yet they could not come to the throne of God to worship without a high priest to represent them. Their sins could not be uh, put away until there was someone to represent them. Then you come to the new covenant, chapter 9, verse 11. Let's read on as we did just a moment ago. But Christ being come a high priest of good things to come, by greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. For if the blood of bulls and of goats and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling the unclean, sanctified to the purifying of the flesh, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Go back to verse 9 for a minute concerning the old and the new in verse 14, the old, which was a figure for the time then present 
in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Then in verse 14, it says that Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So the new covenant now makes us worshipers of God. And where before in the old covenant, the worshiper had to stand without the veil. Now in Christ, we have been given liberty to enter into the veil to worship the Lord ourselves, to have access to God the Father. Hebrews 10, 19 through 22. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with the true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There's so much to be said here. Even verse 22 is referencing when it says our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That's talking about the offering of the sacrifice and the sprinkling of the blood. And then also as well, our bodies washed with pure water has to do with the labor of the Old Testament and how the priests would go and wash their hands and their feet after they'd already been positionally washed by Moses before they were then instructed to do so themselves as priests. And the scripture goes on to say in Exodus that they would die if they did not do so, the priests. That if they did not go to the labor and wash themselves, that they themselves would die. So because of this covenant that we're talking about now, having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter, but Christ, in verse 11, becoming a high priest over good thing, of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. Because of this covenant, we have boldness and assurance as we approach the Lord to worship him. Before, the Lord was not approachable. God was not approachable. Yet now, because of the Lord Jesus Christ, because God has spoken unto us by his Son, and he, he has offered his Son the atonement for our sins as followers, as believers in Christ, because of this, now, this new covenant, which is in effect because of his blood, has given us the ability, and God has allowed us and accepted us, if you will, into the Holy of Holies, and we're granted that access to God the Father. In Hebrews 10, 16 through 22, let's read that for just a moment before we continue. Hebrews 10, 16, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. And their sins and iniquities will remember no more. And this is a reference back to the Old Testament. Now, where remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Here it is again. By a new living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. And having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So here we find, leading up to those statements in chapter 10 that we read a moment ago, we see that this is the covenant. God will remember sins no more. He will put their law, his law into their hearts, he says. And where there is remission of these is, there is no more offering for sin. The Lord has made an eternal covenant with his son. And the church, of course, believers in Christ are benefactors of that covenant. The sacrifice which was made on our behalf is a better sacrifice. Again, Christ is better. In the old covenant, the people had to bring a sacrifice and offer it unto the Lord on behalf of their sin. The blood of the sacrifice, however, as we've just read, was never able to cleanse the conscience of the one who offered it up. 
But yet in the new covenant, the Lord himself offered up the sacrifice. The Lord Jesus Christ is God's sacrifice for his people. He is God's sacrifice, and he is our substitute. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he, the Father, hath made him the Son to be sin for us, the sinner, that the Son who knew no sin, that we, the sinner, might be made the righteousness of God in him, in the Son. The remembrance of sin, if you notice what we've read just now, the remembrance of sin was really the characteristic of the Old Covenant. Again, in Hebrews chapter 10, look at chapter 10 again, look at the first verses here, it's interesting. He says, verse 3, talking about the, the sacrifices that were made, and how, look at verse 1 first, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, and not the very image of the things. What is the image of the things? Christ is that image. He is the express image of the person of God. That's what we're being told. And so Christ is that image. He is the substance, but yet the law having only a shadow of these things. The old covenant only had the shadow of the true, which is Christ. But if you look, go on to read, it says, can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers thereunto perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered? In other words, had the Old Testament sacrifices been capable of cleansing the conscience and heart of the worshiper, guess what would have happened? They would have ceased offering the sacrifices because they would have been made complete by them, but they weren't. He goes on to say, because that the worshippers once purged should have had no more conscience of sins. There it is. Going back to what we read a moment ago. The old could not purge the conscience, but Christ has purged the conscience he says but verse three but in those sacrifices there is remembrance again made of sins every year verse four for it is not for it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins now let me explain something here quickly before we move on i don't want to digress too far or too much but let me just say that it's important that you recognize while there are many people today who believe that the old testament believers were redeemed because they offered sacrifices, as though their sins, or they say, why did the Old Testament believer have to offer sacrifice? Many people would say, well, because that was the way that their sins were forgiven. No, that's not the way their sins were forgiven. As a matter of fact, the opposite is true. The scripture says that in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance made every year again of the sins. So the yearly atonement that was made had nothing to do with their sins being forgiven it had to do with them being reminded that they were sinful before God and they had to rest and trust in God's provision for them for forgiveness which was not in the blood of bulls and of goats and that is important to understand while many people look to the law as though it had some form of redemptive quality to it the only redemptive quality to the law is it its power to show us our need of Christ and redemption, which is what the Old Testament sacrifices did. They were not sacrificing in the Old Testament for forgiveness. God required them to sacrifice to remind them, you owe a debt that you cannot pay. But Christ's death has purged our conscience, our inner man, from that sin from the guilt of that sin, from the power of that sin, from the condemnation of that sin. And that is something the Old Testament sacrifices not only could not do, 
were never intended to do. And that is a great misconception within the modern day church. So it would seem. People believe that the law and the sacrifices of the Old Covenant is what did. Listen, the whole emphasis of Hebrews, Christ is better. All of that were, all these things were merely a shadow of the image, which the image is Christ. So these things were never intended, intended to do what people believe they were to do. So this better covenant is established on better promises, and this is all true because Jesus is so much better. So now let's go back to verse 4. Now all of that is important, I mean obviously, but all of that is greatly important even in relation to verse 4 because Christ is so much better than the angels, is setting that stage again in the foundational truth of Christ is better than all of these things. And he begins with the angels, because obviously angels were not earthly creatures. It was not an earthly structure as the tabernacle. It was not an earthly sacrifice such as animals. These are heavenly creatures that God created. Heavenly creatures that Christ created. And he is better than them, but yet it says he was being made, being made so much better than the angels. So again, let's understand the context of this, verse 4 being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. The participle being in this verse is not in the same uh, tense as the previous one I mentioned a moment ago. And in the reference it, it, to, that is used to reference the meaning for it to be here, that it is present, is for the purpose of the manifestation of Christ in the flesh regarding that and referring to that specifically his glorified body, as I mentioned a moment ago. So, Philippians 2, 9 through 11. You know these verses, but let's go back to them for a moment and see how all this ties together again. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him. Who's the him here? Jesus. But wait a minute. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. So how is God exalting Jesus when from the very beginning, Jesus is with the Father, in perfect fellowship with the Father, one one with the Father, how is it then that God is highly exalting him? In chapter 2 of Philippians. Let's read on. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The statement that God the Father has given Jesus a name, which is above every name, is preceded by the declaration of Jesus' humility when manifested in the flesh. If you go to chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 of Philippians, just prior to verses 9 through 11, it says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. So here it's saying that Jesus did not think it wrong or unequal to declare himself to be one with God, but yet made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So here's what we have to understand here, and we'll see 
in chapter 1, verse 4 of Hebrews, and chapter 2 and, and the Carmen Christi, and chapter 2 of Philippians, and any other passages that we'll read in just a moment, we must understand that the person of Christ has always been better than the angels. For the angels are created beings, and Jesus is the very word of God. He is God in the flesh. However, he humbled himself to become lower than the angels in his incarnation. Look at Hebrews chapter 2. Turn back a couple pages. And verse 7. Thou madest him a little lower than the angels. Thou crownedst him with glory and honor, and didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet, for in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. Here you have it. Lower than the angels is referencing the incarnation of Christ, that he came in the flesh as the Son of Man. That he comes into the flesh taking on humanity, taking on the garb of flesh, laying aside his robe of royalty, if you will, still being God, still being God, but yet taking on him the form of man. And in that, he became a little lower than the angels. However, he now resides forever in a glorified flesh, which God the Father declared is better than even the heavenly angels. He not only is better, but is given, he has also been given a better name than the angels, the Scripture says. And so when, he's, when the Scriptures in Philippians refer to Christ being exalted, remember, preceding that passage, it says, but God, or that he hath exalted him above all, and given him a name which is above every name. Before that is the incarnation of Christ humbling himself and becoming obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Here in Hebrews 2, we're being told again, a little lower than the angels, but what's it referencing? It's referencing him tasting death for every man. How did that happen? Through his incarnation. But he now resides in a glorified body, in a glorified flesh. And for look, here's, here is a beautiful truth to this. Do not ever forget this. Jesus, prior to his incarnation, did not possess flesh. He was with the Father. He became flesh. The word became flesh, 1 John I'm sorry, John chapter 1, verse, verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He did not possess He took on flesh. He became flesh. But he now resides still in flesh. But it is a glorified flesh. And here's the beauty of that. He ever liveth in a glorified flesh to make intercession on our behalf. Forever and ever, we have and high priest that resides in a glorified flesh, which one day we as well will possess a glorified flesh after this corruption shall put on incorruption. Till that day, we still have a Savior who can relate to the flesh of mankind, though he is without sin. And so he abides and resides in a glorified body. But he's also given a name that is better than the angels. The writer's use of the word name means more than a title by which one is known. We think of name and we think of, of what we call someone. We think of, for instance, you know, our, our, 
first name, middle name, last name, whatever, and we consider it as a title so often. In fact, many people think that Christ is the last name of Jesus, which obviously it's not. He is the Christ. He is the Messiah. That in itself is a title. He is the anointed one. But yet the word name is more than a title. The names used for our Lord are too many to mention, obviously. Yet the scripture is plain in speaking about his excellent name. In Ephesians 1, 19 uh, through 21, we read this. And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Then in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, I'm just bear with me again as we read it once more. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Acts 4.12, neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, while there are many people and discussions and schools of thought who question or discuss the meaning of the mention of the term excellent name, which is mentioned in verse 4, the clarification to this statement is made in the following verse. So when it speaks of a name, what is it actually referring to? Well, let's read verse 5. Let's read verse 4 and 5 together. Being made so much better than the angels, as he hath by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For unto which of the angels said he at any time, Thou art my son. This is not talking about the title or the name that we may put together in in letters of course or as are provided for us in letters such as jesus j-e-s-u-s as though that title or that mention of those letters compiled together is talking about that that is the name that in itself because listen obviously there are many people who have since been named obviously jesus even in different in different cultures but the reality is that it's speaking of his position, his authority, his person. So this name, his glorified body, his position that now he has received of the Father, he's always been his son. He's always been the son of God in the sense that he's his only begotten son, right? So he's always been his son. But now he has been exalted to the right hand in a glorified body, to the right hand of God the Father, and he is the he is the Lord over all, and everyone will bow to his name, not to when Jesus is mentioned, no, to his person, to his being, to his position. He is exalted above all. So when it says that he's better, so much better than the angels, he is in a glorified flesh, but yet he is so much better than the angels because he has been exalted after humbling himself below or lower than the angels. He is now exalted far above the angels in a glorified body, and God has set him at his right hand. And then the statement's made for, or the question is asked, for unto which of the angels said he at any time, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee, and again I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Here the writer of Hebrews refers back to the Psalms. Psalm 2-7, I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Again, we must look back to the gospel according to John. Jesus is the only begotten son. And this title is used in this verse as well, separates Christ from all others, even the heavenly beings. 
We, as believers in Christ, are born again. And through this new birth, we are made God's children. Christ, being the only begotten, was not born to become a son, but rather came as the Son of God, sent from the Father. James and Fawcett Brown in the commentary made the following comments concerning this passage. Christ has a fourfold right to the title Son of God. By generation as begotten of God, by commission as sent by God, by resurrection as the first begotten of the dead, and by actual possession as heir of all. The name which Jesus obtained is the authority and position he now holds as God's son in glorified flesh. He obtained that. God gave that to him. He's always been the son of God. He's always been one with the father. He's always been with the father until he was manifested in the flesh and became lower than the angels, humbling himself to take on the form of humanity. But God has highly exalted him, being made. As we read in verse 4, being made so much better than the angels. Not a created being, but a manifestation of the flesh, which God then exalted after death, burial, and resurrection to a glorified flesh, which is now exalted above all. This same Jesus sits at the right hand of God as our great high priest. And here's what the writer is saying. He is so much better. So much better. And so much better than the angels is just the beginning. We will see how he's better in every way. But yet, you see how the old covenant, the new covenant, Christ being better than the angels, how that all comes together. Hopefully you understand maybe more clearly now how that that can even be a statement in Scripture that being made so much better because he's glorified flesh, exalted above all, ruling and reigning Lord supreme. One day his enemies will be manifested to be his footstool. He already lords and reigns over them all, but one day they will realize he lords and reigns over them all, and so will all created beings. Because all will bow at his name. Not Jesus, the letters, the person, the being, the power, the Lord. This is the greatest name. He is my son, the Father says. My only begotten son. It's who he is, not... Listen, listen please, hear me closely. And people really, really do not understand this. And now let me, let me, before I even say it, tell you why they don't understand it. Because you listen to them pray and it becomes, a, they become very clearly evident they don't understand it. People think that the word Jesus, the letters put together, is some powerful magic potion or, of word that therefore they can get anything they want because they pray in Jesus' name. It's not talking about saying Jesus. The power is not in the letters that form the word Jesus. The power is in the person of Jesus, the Christ, who he is. He's better than an angel's having obtained a more excellent name than they. His power, his position, his person is greater than all the heavenly creatures because he is not a creature. He is God. So would you not agree with the writer of Hebrews and be able to confidently say, he, Jesus, is so much better. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for your word. And